Ago, Secretary of State Daniel Webster said, whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens. You know why? Because we're called to love our neighbors, and we want what's good for the community. So we want a society that is built on justice, on peace, on security, where you can work hard and make a living, and where there is a, a healthy moral environment to raise a family in, most of all where there's freedom to practice our faith without fear of intimidation, discrimination, or persecution. And America has the ability to provide that kind of environment. We're blessed to live in a land like this that has built, been built on the recognition and protection of our God-given rights. We're grateful for a nation that has been so tolerant of Christianity, at times very positive toward Christianity, and even occasionally promoting Christianity. It's, it's founded on the belief of, of God as creator, that all our blessings come from him. We're free to practice our faith and respect those biblical values of justice and morality. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to get all political here, even though some people might think that's my intent. It's to be biblical. And, and as Christians, we need to learn to think more biblically than politically. So is America great? Some people say it never was. Some say we need to make it great again. Others say it is great as it is right now. What we all agree on is that America is not perfect. Uh, it's not fair to compare this nation against some imagined utopia where everything runs perfectly and everything is all well and good. Why? Because every nation is made up of sinful people and every ruler has a sinful nature. So that, that's not going to happen. That's why the genius of the founding fathers was to create not another royal dictatorship or a pure democracy because that is rule by fascism. Whether it's from a king or a mob, you have to have a nation that's grounded on something better, higher, deeper than that to recognize that there's an outside supernatural source of authority. And that's what our constitutional form of government recognizes, that we have these elected representatives who are here to work for us, not to rule over us. It is a government of, by, and for the people. Why? Because God gave us the gift of government. Now, I know it doesn't seem that way that government's a gift, but imagine a world without it. There would be anarchy, chaos, injustice, unchecked evil. And so let's look at an important passage in Romans 13 in the New Testament that guides us on how to be the best kinds of citizens, especially as we look at the role of government. What is the government supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain." For he is the servant of God, an avenger, <laughs> who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. 
Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So, there's a lot of principles there about citizenship. First, we understand that all authority belongs to God, and he delegates some authority. He delegates some to parents to manage the family. He delegates some authority to church elders to oversee his spiritual family. And all authority from God is to be used in accordance with his purpose and his will. He delegates some authority to the state. Why? So that there can be justice and that they can exact vengeance on evildoers. That's why we are called not to take personal vengeance on those who do wrong or or cause harm or commit crimes. We're to leave that vengeance to God who then executes that judgment through his appointed authorities in government and or ultimately through his own justice on that final judgment day. So how does government bring terror? Through the threat of punishment, the use of force. That's what the sword symbolizes. How is government a servant for our good? By providing a society of law and order where we are protected and there is peace. Now, as Romans says, does that mean God established every specific government? Does he install every specific ruler? I would hope not, because nearly every government, I would say every government, is at least somewhat off the mark in terms of God's will and purposes. Most governments are far afield from what God's intentions are. Think about the early church. It was born under which empire? The Roman Empire, a very godless, pagan, corrupt, evil empire. And yet, even that government kept even greater evils in check through the threat of punishment and even death. Now, you know what the best form of government is, right? You would expect me to say American. It is not. It would be a benevolent dictatorship. That's right. If you could find a dictator who would rule in accordance with God's will and purpose, we would have that utopia, right, where we're being led exactly the way God intends. You know, that was tried in the Old Testament. I mean, the the Israelites were under the rule of God as their only king, but that wasn't good enough for them. They cried out, we want a ruler like the other nations had. We want human kings to rule over us. And God relented and said, fine, (laughs) go ahead and I'll give you what you want. But he warned them, here's what's going to happen. A lot of bad stuff. And sure enough, bad things happen. Even under the best of kings, like David, he was flawed. He committed sins. He brought misery on the nation. So yes, dictatorships work. They are efficient. Even fascists keep the peace, but at what cost? Well, the cost of personal freedom, of economic oppression, of religious persecution. It's not worth that cost. All forms of human government are flawed and at times unjust and often even corrupt. Why? Because they're made up of sinful people who are motivated by pride and power and greed. So since there is no such thing as a good, benevolent dictator, we have to settle for the next best thing, which is, again, the genius of our founding fathers who gave us a constitutional republic, not a pure democracy, because that would just be tyranny by the majority, but a government that recognizes our God-given rights and that needs checks and balances because they understand sinful human nature needs to be kept under control, that you can't give the government too much power because too much power leads 
to tyranny and despotism. Now, that's not that the founding fathers were all biblical Christians. They certainly were not. But they all seem to have at least an honor for God as creator and ruler and a respect for biblical values. And yet, how many times have we heard that phrase, the separation of church and state, and thought it was in the Constitution? It is not. It is an often misinterpreted phrase that comes from a letter written by Thomas Jefferson in 1802. The purpose of our Constitution and our First Amendment is to protect the state from overruling or, or interfering with the church, to protect the church from the state more than anything, as well as to prevent the government from setting up a state-sponsored or favored particular denomination. But overall, it favored a biblical form of law. And many modern Secularists and revisionists today have tried to rewrite and censor out that biblical foundation of our government. Because uh, I, I, I doubt that few have been told that before the Declaration of Independence was signed that the Continental Congress called for a day of prayer and fasting. And all the colonies uh, participated in that on May 17, 1776. And that when the Constitutional Convention began, it began in prayer as well. And the very first act of our Congress was, guess what? To establish a Christian chaplaincy in the Senate. And their second order was to give Bibles to the Indians. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., you can wander around all the federal buildings and monuments and see references to God and biblical verses inscribed. But democracy is a horrible thing if you don't have a population that honors God and respects those biblical values, that God's order and justice and right and wrong, and that uses his delegated authority properly, if you don't have a citizenry that adheres to an objective supernatural source of authority, then you're just going to have like it was back in the days of Israel and the days of the judges, these rulers who had to rise up to rescue Israel over and over because they would fall into a cycle of sinning and rebelling against God, rejecting him, and they would collapse and they would be invaded because they had abandoned God. It was a hot mess in Israel. Because it said everybody did what was right in their own sight. So, you combine Christianity and the Constitution with the free market expression of capitalism that respects private property rights and rewards hard work, and you've got a good society, a really good one, one that has set a new standard for what government can be, that has caused immigrants from all over the world to want to come here, and nations all over the world to want to be like us, to have what we have. So yes, we should be very grateful that we get to live in this land. Is it perfect? No. Flawed, sinful, sometimes awful, Evil, yes, absolutely, because it's made up of sinful people. But of all the human governments that have been seen throughout history, it's, we can say it's the least worst. I mean, those of us who are older remember when more Americans were patriotic. Americans, by and large, openly embraced the values that shaped our republic, and it was very easy to be a Christian and a patriot. In fact, it was often assumed if you were an American, you were a Christian. And that all good Christians supported the United States, right? 
We, we endorsed America. It became kind of a civil religion where people, whether they were genuine believers or not, thought Christianity was good for society. And so a lot of people went to church just for the social benefit of it or the business contacts, but it was, it was good for society. And even in churches, it all got intertwined, faith and patriotism. You would see, some of you remember, American flags would be on the platform of the church and the hymnals would contain patriotic songs that would be sung as a part of worship. Kids would, in church, pledge allegiance to the Christian flag, remember? Which was not really a thing, that's just kind of a made-up cultural thing, but also to the American flag. And so it all got a little too much intertwining where the, the flag was kind of used to wrap around the cross. And we, we, hey, we are absolutely grateful that we get to live in this country. But when we gather together, it is not as Americans, it is as Christians. We are here not to honor a human nation, no matter how good it is. We are here to honor the King of Kings and Lord of Lords of this transnational kingdom we're a part of called the church. It's heavenly citizenship we have. And so I think it's harder and more complex today to be a patriotic Christian. I mean, you still find folks, some from the older generation, that get upset if you don't have an American flag and patriotic songs that you sing in church. But think about where we are today. I mean, we, we want to be a patriot in the best sense of the word that wants the best for our country and for fellow citizens. But that doesn't mean we support our country no matter what. It means we stand for what's right, we support that, but we call out what's not right, what's not good. That's patriotism too. And in a country whose motto and on our money it says in God we trust, and whose pledge says one nation under God, you know, it's, it's a struggle now for the soul of America to decide what kind of nation are we really gonna be? Whose views and values and beliefs and standards are going to be the basis for law? Used to be a majority of Americans were Christian. I don't think that's true anymore. Certainly not in any real biblical sense. A majority may still believe in God, but it's not the God of Scripture. Very few people have actual biblical worldviews and values. Even many Christians in many churches, so-called, reject those kinds of biblical values, those those godly values. They've turned away from those. Many today have no real idea of the history and principles of our constitutional form of government. They don't realize the kind of heritage they would be throwing away, like Israel did, to become like all the other nations around them, like Esau trading in his birthright for a bowl of stew. It would be foolish to throw away that heritage. And yet the more we do, the more we pursue being like other nations, the more division, the more conflict, the more misery, the more poverty we see. Because democracy without morality is doomed to the dustbin of history. It cannot work. It's it's just the same old cycle we see of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire where it, it rots and unravels and it's corrupted from within. It collapses from within. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was uh, a great scholar and a political prisoner and one of the most famous Soviet Union dissidents, who was a critic of communism, spent many years in, in a Soviet prison. And when he came out, 
He told about the human rights abuses, the political oppression, the, the gulag concentration camps. And as he's searching for an answer for why his native Russia had become devastated by this communist revolution, he thought back to the Bolsheviks when they first took over and made it communist. And what the people said back then, men have forgotten God. That's why this has happened. And I wonder if we're heading down the same path. We are forgetting God. And what's going to happen? That foundational trust in God, in God we trust, has been undermined. In schools, we have traded the creator God for the idol of evolutionary chance. Truth has been traded for relativism. The equality of opportunity has been traded in for some Marxist notion of equity of outcome. It's a society that is growing more hostile to Christianity, dominated, a dominated hostility against Christianity in the media, in Hollywood, among journalists, universities, even sometimes in our courts, our military, and even anti-biblical indoctrination in our elementary schools. I, I don't need to convince you of that. You see it going on. I don't have to go through how, how messed up things have grown, how bananas our world has grown. We're witnessing it right before our eyes, this moral freefall that's happened very quickly. Tax dollars, our money being used to promote and subsidize sin. Corporations, major league sports, even cartoons advocating immorality. Granted, some things in society are better but with the decline of the nuclear family, the devastation it has brought through the rise in divorce, cohabitation, illegitimacy, violent crime, drug abuse, the, the, the rise in, in devaluing of human life, denial of gender, the permeation of pornography. I mean, what was once unimaginable has become our reality. How can God continue to bless a nation that values its trees and birds' eggs over unborn babies? How can he continue to bless a nation that corrupts its children, that rebels against God's created order of sexuality and marriage? Maybe, maybe it's going to be the next generation, the kids, the teenagers, that are going to rebel against all the nonsense and godlessness and, and craziness that's going on today. Because what left is there to rebel against? I mean, there's nothing hardly left. Maybe the real rebels will be the ones that say, this is, we're not doing this anymore. Let's go back to God. There's still hope. We're counting on the next generation to choose that path of revival instead of ruin. We return, we repent. And so Christians, how do we be citizens in this environment? I mean, do we, do we stand up for our country? Or do we, do we withdraw from society? Do we fight for America or do we fight against it? Well, we remember that we are dual citizens. Yes, we are citizens of this nation, but our primary citizenship is to this holy nation called the church. Paul talks about that in Philippians 3.20. In fact, let's all say this together out loud. But 
Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is our primary allegiance to? King Jesus. In this transnational kingdom within us and among us, our king sends us out as ambassadors into this world, as strangers and aliens just temporarily passing through this world to represent him, to influence it for him. That doesn't mean we want to Christianize America through the force of law and turn it into some Jesus-loving version of Iran. Nobody wants that. Remember, we are out to win hearts and minds, not to beat the culture into submission through some kind of pseudo-theocracy. We would love to see, though, God acknowledged as the basis of law and justice and morality. Why? For the good of the citizens. That's why our big idea is be a good citizen to be a good witness. Christians should make the best citizens. And most of all, we want to see a free society where we can practice our faith openly and share our faith without fear, without fear of intimidation, discrimination, or persecution. So let's see how to be the best kind of citizen. And it begins with this. Number one, pray. We are called to pray for those in authority. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, you know, asking for things, prayers, intercessions, interceding, and thanksgivings, that's the hard one, be made for all people, for kings, all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified every way. So as Christians, we don't just complain about what's going on in the world. The world's going to be the world. We pray We pray for them that we have a peaceful, just, free society where we can practice our faith and even more so share the message of Jesus. Because look at the next verses. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of God of the truth. And you know, in many nations, we, they are not free to evangelize. To talk about Jesus openly risks not only oppression and discrimination, but you could be put to death for it. So we don't want that to happen here, and it could. So we pray for our nation, for our officials, that they would have the wisdom to do what is right in God's sight for the good of all. Second thing we can do is obey. Remember back in Romans 13 that we are supposed to be subject to the authorities, not only to escape punishment through fines and, and, you know, force, but because it's the right thing to do. One of our founding fathers, our second president, John Adams, said this, quote, This Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other kind. What's that mean? He means... It only works if we can govern ourselves. And we can only govern ourselves if we want to do what's right and good. Otherwise, it doesn't work. People who have lost respect for God's authority fall into lawlessness. And the only reason democracy works is because we choose to obey for conscience' sake. Because I tell you, if we ever lose that, there will never be enough police or jails to restrain the evil that will take place. That that respect we have is is for God ultimately. To, To disrespect authority is ultimately to disrespect God himself. I mean, think of this. 1 Peter 2 echoes what Romans 13 says, and it was written during the time, again, of that pagan, wicked Roman Empire. 
Peter says, but be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperors as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. That means we obey the laws even when we don't like them or agree with all of them. Even when the police are not looking, we still do what's right. And we don't justify lawlessness by saying, well, everybody does it. Well, we don't. Because if we flout even the minor laws, then we have disrespected God, we have brought disrepute on our integrity, and we have damaged our witness. The state, we know, is sometimes going to pass unjust laws, certainly ungodly laws. And if so, then there's a case to be made for civil disobedience, to say we're not going to go along with that law because we are not going to do what God says not to do. That's not right. That's unjust. Because Caesar is not God. Jesus is Lord. He's our king, and we obey him. Our allegiance is to him. That's the stand the apostles took when they were ordered no longer to preach Christ. They said, nope, can't do that. Acts 5, 29. In fact, we'll all say this out loud together as well. We must obey God rather than men. And even then, it's going to be peaceful. It's not going to be violent resistance, but if we're prepared to stand against the state, then we've got to be prepared to suffer the consequences. The apostles did. They stood up, but they also suffered a beating for that, and we have to be ready for that too. But the beauty is, in our society, civil disobedience can be the very last resort because we have access to our lawmakers and our court systems. But what would happen if the government told you that you could no longer practice your faith openly? What if the government stepped in and said you can no longer gather together and assemble as a church to worship? What if they denied our rights as individuals, as a church, to share the message of Jesus Christ? What would you do then? And maybe we are approaching that imagined scenario faster than any of us had ever imagined. We need to be ready for that. The third thing we should do, and I hate to say this one, but it's pay taxes. It's what it says. Go back to Romans 13. Here's our duties as citizens. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. That means they're servants. They're doing his work attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are due, owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And yes, we are way overtaxed, and so many of those dollars are used for illegitimate purposes, for ungodly reasons. I don't like any of it. And you know what? It's wrong for us personally to envy and steal from others, but somehow we can justify it if we vote for others to do it for us by force. Don't like any of that. But that doesn't give us a moral loophole to cheat or avoid paying taxes. I mean, think about this. Who hated t paying taxes any more than the subjugated Jewish people under the Roman Empire? And yet Jesus told them to render to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God. And it can be really difficult when you do not agree with those government policies, when uh, you do not have respect for the people holding office. And yet, we're still called to honor the office, even if we cannot respect the office holder. 
we respect the authority of that office. And the fourth thing we can do is to exercise your right to influence. Imagine that. This was unthinkable in the early church to be able to speak out, to vote, to, to impact the policies of the nation or to change the lawmakers altogether. They didn't have any of those rights, but we do. Say what you will about America, but at least we have the right to vote and we have the First Amendment, which is an incredible thing in world history, such a unique thing. And yet, do you even know what's in the First Amendment? Most don't. And that's why I'm going to put it on the screen for you to make sure we all claim these rights. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. We need to claim those rights to speech, the freedom of speech, of religion, of the press, of assembly, and to petition. So vital to keeping our freedom to being good citizens, because Jesus called us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That means we're to influence our, our society for his good, to be the conscience of the community, to be for the community, to bless the community. And we can do that when we stand up and we speak out for what's right, true, and good. When we communicate with our elected officials, when we make posts and write letters, and when we petition and picket and all those things, these are unalienable rights that nobody can take away from us, no matter how much they oppose us or disagree with us or call us names. These are our rights, and we should claim them because Paul the Apostle claimed his rights when he was in court as a Roman citizen that they should treat him in accordance with his rights. How much more so should we in this free society? And we don't want to intertwine church and state. We understand the world's going to be the world and the church is going to be the church and sometimes our kingdoms are going to be in conflict and we will be at war with the world. But here's what we can do. We can begin to shape the culture instead of letting it shape us. Instead of being passive observers of what's going on around us, we become active participants and begin to shape and influence others. So again, be a good citizen to be a good witness. Because the world's going to do what the world does. They're going to continue to try and solve our spiritual problems and our moral problems with worldly, political, military, economic solutions. And it will never work. Because you can't force the solutions from the outside. These are internal problems. They keep, they keep trying the same old things over and over and keep teaching the same toxic things and throwing money at this and money at that, and it's never going to work. You know what the solution is to our societal sins and cultural problems? You know what it is. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that God sent his son into this world to forgive us for the wrongs we've done and to empower us to live for him, to transform our hearts. That's where it starts. In our hearts, you can't change the world. You can only change people. And the only one who can change people is Jesus Christ. We need to be transferred from this worldly kingdom into his eternal kingdom where our first allegiance is to him. Then God's kingdom can come and his will be done as we all submit ourselves to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you've never done that yet, 
I want to invite you to put your trust in Jesus to repent of your personal sins. Yes, there's sins all around us. They're all over there. But let's start right here. It starts right here in, in the house of God with God's people. Have you committed yourself to him? Have you been baptized into Christ and pledged your allegiance to Jesus as your Lord? We're going to invite you to do that whether you're here in person or online. You can text your name or email us at the numbers that you see on the screen. Better yet, if you're here, meet with somebody here at the front right after the service. We would be happy to answer your questions, to pray with you, or to get you ready to be baptized into Christ today and become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Let's stand together and let's sing as a response to him.